Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. So are there fans kind of like there are any other sport? Like is there people who root for a specific buffalo or a specific buffalo rider? Buffalo hooligans. Fantasy <laughs> buffalo racing. Fantasy leagues. Well, this is what we're going to do, Evan. I'll sponsor one racer. You sponsor another racer. People say like, what do you, so what do you do? What do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? Like just betting on buffalo racing? Like, all right. I don't think my uh, travel insurance would cover buffalo racing. I'll have to check the small print. Welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. we got a great one for you today with our new friend, Marco Rangelovic. He is a documentary filmmaker and photojournalist based in Southeast Asia, and he is debuting a new film, Makapung, on Matador Network on January 12th. This film covers the little-known sport of buffalo racing, uh, which takes place in Bali in the summertime. It is a big, big, big deal there. And uh, we're going to share the light on that today. Marco is going to talk about this film. He's going to talk about some other projects he's worked on and his thoughts on both digital nomading in Bali and making films abroad. So I'm really excited for this one. But first, Evan, we got our hot takes segment. Are you ready? I'm ready for hot takes. I'm ready for our fantasy Buffalo Racing League to kickstart. If fantasy football is not working out for you, check out fantasy Buffalo Racing because me and Tim are going to get that going. But we don't want to jump the gun too much. So yeah, we'll get into hot takes. Okay. Well, my first one for you this week is right in line with the topic of today's show. I'm curious, Evan, what is the craziest sport that you have ever done? And while while you're considering this, I will say that I myself have been on a buffalo. It was a water buffalo. Oh, okay. Voluntary. Was it consensual? Like, what's what's going on? It was. Yes, I was uh, on my honeymoon in. We were in Cambodia actually, and we took an eco tour. Uh, where we went to a farm where these water buffaloes live. Very interesting, water buffalo. Okay. No racing though. And so they, that's they 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 live in like ponds, right? Like little. Yeah. They live like, in like little ponds. Yeah, like foot deep ponds. The only thing I know about water buffaloes is that scene in Tropic Thunder where Jack Black approaches the water buffalo and he's all tweaking out on drugs or on, uh, on withdrawals. That's when I think of water buffalo. It's all I can picture in my mind. So yeah, as for weirdest sport or craziest sport, I mean, I, I don't know if you. I mean, this is a sport, uh, but I don't know how crazy it is. Is probably dog sledding. I've done that twice now. Love it each time. Highly recommend to anyone who hasn't done it. Dog sledding is great. Done it once in uh, Svalbard, which is in the Arctic Circle north of Norway, and another time in Alaska. And it's great. It's really, it's you get to know the dogs before you do it. If you go out on a tour, uh, which you probably will if you're doing it, uh, you get to know the dogs first. You get to like feed them and kind of hang out with them. And then... They're so well trained. It's so impressive. They're such beautiful dogs, and then you get to you know you go out on. Most will let you steer your own dog sleds. Don't do one of those tours that where you just sit in the thing and you don't actually pilot it. But the sense of freedom you have when you're just out there, just you and the dogs and the tundra. It's like going back in time and this feeling of rusticness that you just can't get in your everyday life, and I certainly don't get in my everyday life. Uh, so it's awesome. Highly recommend. That's funny, Evan, because I wouldn't have pegged you as somebody that would enjoy dog sledding. 
Yeah, no, but again, when I'm traveling, I enjoy stuff that I would never consider doing in my everyday life. Like uh, like Greenland. People are like, oh, what'd you do in Greenland? Like, I love Greenland. People are like, what'd you do in Greenland? I mean, I basically hiked the entire time. And people are like, you don't like that. You don't like hiking. You don't, you, don't, you don't even go camping in New Hampshire. Why would you go hiking in Greenland? I'm like, because it's New Hampshire and it's Greenland. Like, it's if it's in a cool, little explored uh, region of the world that not a lot of people get to go to or experience and it's a kind of a once in a lifetime thing then yeah i'm gonna do it i'm gonna enjoy it but if it's going hiking waking up at 6 a.m to go hiking in new hampshire which everybody i know does every weekend like who cares that doesn't do anything for me you've just given me so much fodder for future discussions i'm gonna re- i'm gonna reference this for the rest of the time that we have this podcast have we not have we not gone over this before we have Have we not talked we about have before? but not in such depth about you admitting you actually admitting that you enjoyed hiking so the craziest spirit the craziest sport i've ever done eben is uh net fishing off the coast of vietnam when uh, also on the same day on which i was on the, the water buffalo ride which i was just corrected by my wife was actually in vietnam not in cambodia uh we did this eco tour that included um a net fishing and b riding in a coracom which is one of those small bamboo wooden boats that you see uh in Vietnam is particularly along the central the central coast around Da Nang, which was one of the coolest things uh, I've ever done. Net fishing. So what is that? You you're you're like throwing a small net over the water and you're trying to reel in fish. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. You're standing. You're standing in a small boat and throwing the net over and trying attempting to catch fish, attempting to catch our dinner effectively. Yeah. So how'd that go for you? Not well. <laughs> I, could, I am not a I am not a seasoned fisherman. My skills are lacking in that department. I could so. tell by your use of the word attempting. So, how many fish did you catch, if any? I I caught none, but uh, the the boat owner caught several. So, actually, that that reminds me of I was having trouble thinking of the answer to this question before, but now that you said the fishing thing, ice fishing in Alaska, uh, similarly struggled to catch anything. But so you're in anyone who's been in ice fishing knows you you're sitting in this hut this heated hut in the middle of a frozen lake with holes drilled in the ice. And you're sitting, we're sitting, it was me and my friend who were there and uh, a few other groups of people. So it was like us and like maybe eight other people. And I was sitting right next to this Japanese guy who literally, not kidding, every uh, 25 seconds caught a new fish. Every 25 seconds. The guy caught like 12 fish by after the first like half hour. It was crazy. And when you catch a fish the people running the tour they cook it for you so that you catch a fish you give it to them and they'll like fillet it and they'll cook it and then you eat it this guy had eaten a seven eight nine course meal of the fish he'd caught he was just gorging himself on fish and i it was supposed to be our like our lunch so i hadn't eaten before i'm starving haven't caught anything i'm watching this japanese guy stuff his face with the fish that he's catching and he's on his like ninth or tenth fish he catches. He he looks at me. He's like, "Oh, do you want this one?" I was like, "I can't possibly eat." And anymore. he's not sharing any with well, you. Well, on the ninth or tenth, he's like, "I I you know, you want this one? I can't eat anymore. I couldn't possibly. I'm so full." I'm like, "Fuck you, dude. Like, I'll catch my own. Thanks." So you didn't take his fish. I wanted to catch my own. I wanted the satisfaction of catching my own, my own lunch. And I finally did. I caught one fish. It tasted incredible. Probably because it took me three fucking hours to catch it. But uh, yeah, so that was my. Uh, that and the dog sledding, I guess neither of them are too crazy, but combined, maybe that that amounts to an answer. Okay, Evan, my second question for you today uh, is something that I'm hoping you can clarify for me a little bit, because being a Colorado guy, 
dress codes aren't really a part of my life, okay? Uh, I live in a very casual area, and in fact, the town where I went to college was repeatedly voted the worst dressed town in America. So what the hell, I, I think East Coast people know this better than people out West. What is smart casual? And why are there so many dress codes? Like in bars, do you mean mainly? Like bars, like clubs? if you're going on a press trip, or if you, or if oh, yes, okay. or, or or a club, yeah, nightclub. I was gonna actually. say it's all about shoes. When they when they say dress codes, especially in nightclubs, I think it's it's all up to the discretion of the bouncer. Honestly, if you're a girl, you can probably wear whatever the fuck you want. But for guys, yeah, it really comes down to your shoes. You can get away with a lot if you're not wearing quite an appropriate shirt. Maybe shoes if you're not wearing like closed toed nice look it don't have to be nice shoes but like nice looking shoes like i even have some vans that i've gotten into clubs with they just look they're new they're like clean if you don't look at them too close they look like nice shoes and i'll get in with those so it's it's all about the shoes i think when it comes to dress codes and for clubs like yeah i think a button-down shirt is pretty standard and jeans that aren't baggy so when we talk about smart casual i don't even really know what smart casual means but that's kind of what I interpret it as. When I, I when everyone tells me on a press trip or like a restaurant or whatever, like, oh, dress smart casual, I dress the way I would dress to get into a club with a dress code. I dress thinking like, if there was a bouncer at the door, would they let me in? I, w- I was almost not allowed to do a club, probably the only club I've ever been to in Denver because I was wearing sandals. And then I, but because it's Denver, I was able to talk the bouncer into letting me in. Yeah, no, and I, I get the sense that that's not as prevalent in Denver. It's not really that prevalent in Boston either. Like most places, they'll let you in. There aren't a ton of like till six a.m. kind of nightclubs. But I've I have been out with people who have been denied from clubs in Boston because of a dress code. Well, on my side of things, I'll kick it off with the topic that Matador Network's audience on Instagram voted that we should talk about today, which was the film "Don't Look Up." Tim, have you seen this film? I have seen the film, yeah, and it's a very blatant, uh, it's a very blatant talk about climate change, and the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio plays the lead is perfect. It's a little on the nose, like I don't think I watched it with uh, my wife and my parents on Christmas, and I don't think it's, I don't think it comes across as it should to probably a lot of people, uh, but if you know Leo's work uh, on the sustainability front, it all makes perfect sense. It's a star-studded cast, Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, uh, cameos from a ton of other big stars. It's like watching An Inconvenient Truth, but in fiction form. And it's kind of like trying to drive home the point that climate change is a real and present issue, but nobody cares. So the plot is the meteor is coming towards Earth, it's going to destroy Earth, and this is a well-known fact, but nobody does anything about it, and people doubt its existence they doubt they, they buy into misinformation uh media unreliability the themes are all very on point and very accurate and i agree with all of them the problem with it is people don't like being preached to and that is revealed in the film's negative ratings on rotten tomatoes which i think is like around 50 or something it's funny that the film's theme is people not wanting to be told what to do and not caring about something that's like very obviously a detriment. And yet the real world audience consuming this movie is reacting the exact same way to the people in the movie. They're basically saying, Hey, 
we don't want to be preached to. Don't tell us what to do. It's it's almost like I could see the audience of this coming down on clear political divides. So people who are more on the left, more interested in uh, tackling climate change would love the movie. People who are more indifferent and don't really want to be told that the world is coming to an end or kind of want to turn a blind eye are going to hate the movie. So that's kind of how I see it. Right. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's funny because the I was watching it with, you know, my family who are all we're all on the left side of the political spectrum, but I I think that the reason why like my parents in particular didn't like it is because it it's anxiety producing. It's supposed to be a comedy. You expect it to be lighthearted and funny and it's not. It's uh it, there are comedic points to it, but the entire thing is such a reflection of society's, you know, shallowness that it just causes anxiety the entire time you're watching it. Yeah, and I will say I only watched the movie because I knew that one scene was filmed at Wheaton College where I went to school. And I, well, I thought it was actually more than one scene. But I was like, oh, yeah, it was filmed at Wheaton, small liberal arts school in Massachusetts. I was like, oh, okay, that, that'll be cool. I'll go and see, see where I went to school. And it's the scene where Jennifer Lawrence gets arrested, and she's running through a campus that's supposed to be Michigan State, like jogging, and she gets arrested. And instead of Michigan State, it's filmed at, it's filmed at Wheaton, which was cool. I didn't know that. It was, that was like my impetus for watching it. And then it turned out, it turned out to be, um, you know the scene I'm talking about, Tim? Yeah, I do. I do. One of the bag over the head scenes. Yeah, so that's Wheaton. And I was like, all right, well, that was cool. And now it's over. And now I have to listen to this movie tell me why climate change is bad for another hour and a half. But I, I would highly recommend it, actually. It's it's very entertaining. I don't think it's a great movie, honestly, but it's it's very entertaining. Some parts of it are really funny, which you wouldn't expect. And I, I, I think it's worth a watch for sure. All right. Well, our next or my next and last hot take for you is what would inspire you to leave a Yelp review, good or bad? And have you ever left a Yelp review before? I've never left a Yelp review, uh, and I'll tell you why. The reason I've never left a Yelp review is because several years ago, I had one of my very first writing clients was a company that made fake Yelp reviews and sold them to businesses. Uh, So I I have actually written thousands of Yelp reviews, and they're they're all fake. And so I have zero faith in anything on Yelp or Google reviews because it's all crap. Okay. So yeah, I've I do remember you telling me that. I've never left a Yelp review in my entire life until two days ago. And I never I always thought that a negative experience would inspire me to write a Yelp review more than a positive experience because I thought that I would be more motivated to, you know, caution people against the, an establishment that was bad. But it turns out it was a positive experience. And so I went to Uno, Chicago Bar and Grill, Pizzeria Uno, one of my favorite restaurants. Me and my friend from college have this tradition where we used to go in college all the time. We get the rattlesnake pasta, really good pasta uh, with Alfredo sauce, like a jalapeno Alfredo sauce, chicken, cheese, unbelievable. It's been on the menu for like 13 years. So we used to go to Uno that was near Wheaton and we would get rattlesnake pasta. So now every time I meet up with him, he lives like a half hour away. We always meet up at Uno. We go to Uno. It's always a great experience. So this past time, we went to Uno in Haverhill. Shout out to Haverhill. The Uno's in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And we get there. We're the only people there. It's like maybe like 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. Nobody's there. Our waiter is this kind of Italian mafia-esque guy with these gold chains, super friendly, very outgoing. 
he immediately we sit down uh and he asks us you know what we want to drink and whatever and we're just looking at the menus just perusing before we know it he brings us a platter of chicken fingers and we're like we didn't order these and he's like oh yeah yeah uh i had some extras so just don't don't worry about it and we're like all right man thanks and in the meantime, in between, he's talking to us about his daughters and the, all the trouble they give him and his wife and how he had to quit smoking cigarettes. Now he smokes weed, all these different things. Hilarious guy. Uh, we're the, they were the only people there. So we're, we, we're like, okay, well, we're going to have the uh, the rattlesnake pasta. Obviously, we don't even have to look at the menu. We just kind of were pretending to look at the menu, and we know what we're going to get. So we get the rattlesnake pasta, and he, he takes our order. He goes away, comes back maybe five minutes later with a Caesar salad for both of us. And we're like oh this isn't pasta and he's like yeah you can't have pasta without salad like come on you guys are growing boys you got to eat we're like all right thank you so we take the salad we eat the salad and we're like we're getting kind of like kind of full at this point like this is we haven't even had our our entree pasta's pretty big so after the salad we eat the salad get our pasta finally we eat the pasta and then uh, he looks at my friend he's like is it your birthday is that what you said is it your birthday and he's like no he's like no 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 no. you said it's your birthday didn't you oh yep okay okay don't worry i'll be right back and we're like oh my god what's this guy doing he goes away comes back with two massive pieces of chocolate cake and and ice cream and whipped cream and he puts it down in front of both of us and he's like oh yeah like happy like loudly so like like the staff can hear like happy birthday man like oh have have a good one so we get that and then we're like so stuffed by this point and then after maybe 10 minutes, he comes back with a tray that like a butler would have, kind of like one of those like silvery trays that has two napkins soaked in warm water, just like damp, soaked napkins. And he's like, warm towelettes, sirs? Wow. <laughs> like uh, they think like a warm towel they give you on an, like an airline like to really cap off the luxury experience This is like the best server ever it's it was incredible and then so he brings over the uh the bill and he's like oh it's looks something's wrong with your bill looks like uh like three quarters of the things you guys ate aren't on here <laughs> and we're like well i mean we didn't ask for any of it so i would hope not but so yeah only charges for the rattlesnake pasta and it inspired me to write my first ever yelp review have to write a yelp review uh, I'll read it really quickly because I just really want to give as much shine to this Uno's as possible. It says, most underrated chain restaurant in the country. The moment my friend and I walked in, Michael, our server, knew we were packing some serious appetites. Like a maitre d' at a five-star restaurant, he took us through a four-course meal consisting of chicken wings, Caesar salad, rattlesnake pasta, and chocolate cake. We hardly even glanced at our menus. Knowing we meant business, Michael simply anticipated our ravenous needs and delivered a full-service experience like a car wash that comes with an oil change, tire rotation, and massage. He even capped off the experience with hot towels. Were we flying first class on Emirates? Nope. We were dining at Uno. P.S. Highly recommend the rattlesnake pasta, a legendary dish that's been on the menu for over 10 years. That's longer than Seinfeld was on the air. Let that one sink in. Wow, that is great Yelp review, Evan. Great work. First Yelp review. Pretty happy with the whole experience. I thought, I hey, I never thought I would do it. I really just wanted to shout out Unos and Haverhill and our boy Michael for a great dining experience on a casual Sunday. All right. Well, with that, we will get into it with Marco, and we'll see you on the other side. 
Hey, Marco Rangelovich is a documentary filmmaker and photojournalist. He travels all over the world for his work. He is currently in Thailand, a place where uh, I'm a little jealous of him being right now, sitting here in the cold of Colorado. But he is joining us today to talk about his upcoming film with Matador Network, documenting buffalo racing in Indonesia. Marco, welcome to No Blackout Dates. Hi, Norman. Nice to meet you guys. So... I was looking through your website the other day and watched some of your shorts, uh, and it seems that a lot of your work focuses in particular on Asia, and I would almost say Southeast Asia, uh, very heavily. I'm curious why that is and what draws you to that region of the world. I mean, I did the whole traveling around Southeast Asia, uh, backpacking type of full moon party thing in 2014, I think it was. And after that experience, I knew that it was a part of the world I wanted to go back to. I wasn't sure how I was going to go back there. Um, I tried various different ways, web design, graphic design, but it wasn't until I picked up a camera and uh, started making a few documentaries back home. Uh, I realized that maybe I could head out to Southeast Asia and make documentaries out there. And yeah, it's a place that I fell in love with years ago and I'm still in love with now. Do you think that some of the allure of Southeast Asia has kind of faded with its uh, explosion in popularity over the last, like, five to ten years because back i think it became a backpackers paradise when it was relatively unexplored by western digital nomads and now it's like the epicenter of the world for digital nomads has that kind of do you think taken anything away from the the region i mean on surface level maybe but bali for example you know from the outside you think it was saturated with nomads and so many influences and just packed out with all kinds of different people, but in reality, it's a huge island, and the majority of it, you won't find any other tourists. Um, it's just like a kind of little cluster in the south, and also in the centre in Ubud, and the same goes for the whole of Indonesia. Um, you know, it's got so many islands, 7,000 islands, or something like that, so there is loads more places to explore in, in Southeast Asia, and I, th- I definitely think it's still got that, um, that allure that brought people there in the first place. You just got to dig a little bit deeper to find it. Uh, we'll get back on the documentary train here a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as somebody that makes all these films all over the world, and in particular in kind of remote locations, what are some, what are some of the biggest challenges that are consistently presenting themselves to you to not only find a story, but to be able to bring it to life? The, the biggest challenge would be kind of finding something that hasn't been covered and trying to find something that is kind of offers a different perspective on Bali. You know, you type in Bali on YouTube, uh, you type in Thailand on YouTube and you're inundated with videos, like amazing landscapes, amazing views. But the challenge really for me is to kind of create a video, create a short documentary, which addresses something that hasn't really been addressed before and touches on different themes, maybe. Um, So I'm always looking to try and find something that hits home or relates to kind of cultural heritage or some kind of injustice that's gone on. Just something a little bit more deep than just a a girl walking down the beach in a bikini and then cut to a drone shot and then, you know, someone surfing, that kind of stuff. Do you find when you're telling these stories, like in particular, you know, uh, with the Buffalo racing film, you're following a group of Balinese through basically an entire custom, a season of them living out a custom that's very important to their lives. How attached do you find yourself becoming to the to the people and to their customs? Incredibly attached. Um, 
the customs in Bali are so prevalent every morning. I mean, twice a day, you'll see uh, women of the households putting out offerings outside the houses. Um, temples are everywhere. Ceremonies, there's always loads of traffic because everybody's in the street doing, a, doing like a parade to a temple. So it's so in your face and being part of that and being able to document lots of that over the past few years and make friends with Balinese people has been the best part of it, I'd say. Um, they're such a such a great people, so friendly, so kind. They have such a such a cool perspective on life, kind of happy-go-lucky, you know. And it's been something I've been able to really kind of try and I've tried to uh, bring it into my own personal life and try and think like the Balinese a lot more in day-to-day life so yeah I'm, I'm grateful for that for that and it's been really great to to experience that let's talk about uh the film you made in bali uh, Ma- Ma- is it makapong makapong yeah buffalo racing yeah makapong yeah buffalo racing what is buffalo racing buffalo racing so basically it's two two buffaloes connected to a chariot and basically a dude stands on the back of a of a chariot he has a big stick and yeah, they just go at it. They absolutely go at it. The buffaloes all decked out in all these crazy decorations, bells, trinkets, and they sound really cool when they're running. And um, it's just something I'd never seen before. You know, I've seen horse racing and things like that. But this kind of reminded me of something from like Gladiator or from like Roman warfare, you know, kind of chariots and buffaloes. Not sure how useful a buffalo being in a war, but... Uh, but it was interesting and the idea of like, you know, capturing some slow-mo buffaloes and stuff like that, I thought, wow, that could look really good. And then when I found out about the history of Makapong, the buffalo racing and how how the guy that we met, you know, he was so passionate about the, the, the sport, the, the, the culture and how it's kind of intertwined with Balinese religion even, that plays a big part of it. You know, all the prayers they do before it, it's such a big part and, the fact that he wanted to pass it down to his son so much, it just it just seemed like a, a a great a great documentary subject to to cover. So now is it one event a year, or is it like an annual thing, or is it like a season, like they do their events all throughout the year? Yeah, it's like a season in the in the summertime. They do various events. Some they do like a, on like a dirt track. Some they're doing more of like a rice field, like a rice paddy where there's water there. So it's kind of buffalo like uh, surfing kind of thing which is pretty cool i didn't get I, I didn't video that though i just took the the old the old school one um but yeah it goes on there's these cups these trophies to be won but the interesting thing is there's no money involved the the winners don't get any money they just do it for kind of ah, pride okay. and to, to to get a place in the community and i guess maybe a little bit of bragging rights you know so are there fans kind of like there any other sport? Like, is there people who root for a specific <laughs> Buffalo or a specific Buffalo rider and they have signs? Buffalo hooligans. Yes. Yeah. They, it's like, this is what surprised me at rodeos out in the, in the American West. Like I thought it was just like a, a kind of like a gimmicky thing for tourists. Then you get there and there's people that support each, like the Cowboys and they are, they're like local celebrities and they have the signs and they like bet on it. And is there anything similar to that in Buffalo racing culture? 
Fantasy Buffalo racing. Fantasy leagues. <laughs> I think I think there's a untapped market there, you know. I think somebody could kinda of go out and franchise one of these buffaloes and I like stick this. a sponsor on it. Maybe stick a Matador logo on one buffalo and let's go, man. Let's Yeah, I think I mean people will bet on anything, Tim. So I feel like fantasy buffalo racing, like fantasy buffalo league. I don't know, in Palisade, if there's much interest in that out in uh, Western Colorado, maybe talk to some of your neighbors, see if they're interested. I'll do the same, and we'll make a uh, little little betting pool. Well, this is what we're going to do, Evan. I'll sponsor one racer, you sponsor another racer, and then we'll see. Okay. Well, we'll go from there. People say, like, what do, you, so what do you do? What do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? Like, just betting on buffalo racing? They're like, all right, cool, man. Nice. It's, it's nice to meet betting you. Betting on Indonesian buffalo <laughs> racing. Marco, how open were the subjects in the film to being filmed and to showing these stories, uh, particularly the kind of peripheral subjects that weren't the central focus of the story? Uh, was there any convincing you needed to do there? Or how do you generally approach that with this film and others? I work closely with my, one of my best friends, Balinese guy called Agus, and he's such a lovely guy, a really approachable guy. So he organizes it and he helps kind of he knows if somebody's up for being filmed or if somebody's feeling a bit uncomfortable so i just kind of go off him and you know he introduces them to me and if we get a good feeling we go for it i one thing i hear is i i could never ever film people if i feel like they're uncomfortable like it it freaks me out i don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable so i've got to make sure everybody's happy to be filmed or else yeah i can't i can't press record you note on your site that you were with a lot of charitable organizations and a lot of local causes. Um, I'm curious how you source those uh, and how you present their stories in a way that doesn't come across as, you know, some form of cultural appropriation or, or uh, how, how do you maintain a kind of an objective balance in your filmmaking? I mean, it's tough. but what I try to do is, is give a voice to the, um, the local people. So instead of kind of a lot of these NGOs might have like an American, English, German woman in charge. And instead of me interviewing her and having her talk about the the issue and kind of maybe look like a white saviour, as the saying goes, I prefer to just go and interview the, the local people and let them talk and let them tell the story themselves. And it does make it harder because of the language barrier, but I feel like it's so much more effective. Um, and I feel like it's so much more engaging for audiences to hear a local person telling their story rather than the owner of a charity describing a situation. So that's one thing I always try to do. Speaking of uh, getting, you know, a more ground level view, more personal experience, did you ride a buffalo? Nah. No, I did ah, not. Come on. I did not. No, not even, not, not <laughs> tempted, or is it just to, you're not qualified? Yeah, if, you, if you've if you seen the film, you might see that, you know, it can be quite dangerous at times. And... It seems, yeah, it does. It seems very dangerous. Yeah, but, people... yeah, okay. I didn't know if you were, I know if you were, you know, tempted to, to get, give it a whirl yourself. Oh, man, like, I don't think my uh, travel insurance would cover buffalo racing. I'd have to check the small print. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, World Nomads isn't really all about people jumping on the backs of buffaloes, I'm guessing. That'd be such a great story. That's like, oh, how'd you break your ribs? Like, nah, it's just a classic buffalo accident. I got bucked off the back of a buffalo in Bali, man. Wade Holland, who does some presenting for um, for Matador, he really wants to go. Actually, when I met him in 2019, I was editing the buffalo film, and he was saying, no, no way, man, I've seen that. I want to go and ride a buffalo. So it's his dream to go and do it. So there you go. rather him than me, to be honest. Though. Hey, it's a, it's a good way to go out, you know? He died doing what he loved, <laughs> I guess. Right, right, riding a buffalo. <laughs> so... 
you just noted that you were editing in 2019. And one thing I think actually, this is an interesting thing to touch on. Uh, with documentary films, the life cycle of bringing one of them up is quite long, um, which I never realized until I started interviewing more of you guys. Uh, how long was the life cycle on this film? And in general, is that typical that it'll take multiple years for something that uh, to go from, you know, in production to being published? I mean, it's quite embarrassing, really, because I, I, start, I filmed this in 2017. And, you know, I use a camera that's kind of outdated now. And I feel like I've probably improved quite a lot as a filmmaker um, shooting-wise since then. But, and it's only, you know, it's only, it's only around nine minutes long. But the editing process, yeah, it, it's, it's really hard. Like, you, you start and then you stop and another job comes up and you've got to take time away. Then you go back to it and you're like, this is totally rubbish. What have, what have I even been wasting my time doing? You delete everything, you start again. And when it's a passion project you kind of just want to make it perfect because, you know, there's no specific deadline and it's something you want to be really proud of. So you're just always tinkering with it and there's always something you can change and and it ends up being four years later and you're like, what the hell, how has it taken this long? And uh, yeah. you fi you finally finished. So what projects are you excited to work on in, in the future? Uh, are, are any destinations that you're really uh, pumped to go explore and go filming in? Yeah, I mean, 2020, I was supposed to be heading to Laos to make a documentary about um, women who disarm bombs that are still left over there from the uh, Vietnam War. I think more ordnance was dropped on Laos than, than Vietnam. So, some ah. crazy statistics. And, you know, there's a lot of cluster bombs still laying around. And these women are really brave. So that was the plan. Um, maybe 2022 can, can maybe go and do that if things change. But at the moment... Um, I can't. I can't really plan for anything too crazy. Is that because of COVID? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Restrictions in Laos. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's just. It's just hard to get anywhere really. And um, I'm here in Thailand. And after Macapung's been released, you know, this I've got a few ideas of things to do in Thailand. So I'm, I might start thinking about that. But just want to get this uh, this Macapung Buffalo film out of the way for now, and then then start thinking about something else. So I mean, how has COVID changed international filming? Do you think it'll end up going back to pretty much the status quo or will has COVID kind of shifted how people receive filmmakers, how easy it is to gain access to certain places, or do you think you'll have to continue to adapt to this kind of evolving situation? It's tough. It has really changed. In 2019, I was working a, a, like a hell of a lot, like traveling, didn't think twice about it, flight here, flight there. Um, all over the world and then that all changed and you know I didn't really work for like nearly a year um, when COVID hit um, and it is difficult now there's lots of restrictions if you do want to do a shoot you know you've got to make sure everybody's had a PCR test you've got to make sure everybody's got a mask you've got to add it to like the risk assessment so it has stalled things quite a bit but I feel like hopefully I mean I've been a optimistic hopeful guy for the last few years and have been proved wrong i've always thought like oh in a few weeks it'll all be over the same same <laughs> yeah yeah and my, that optimism slowly being ground away and ground down where now i'm just like oh, i don't know i don't know but fingers crossed um things will go back to uh how they were and you know filmmakers can can travel around with relative ease and can get back to creating some some great stuff 
Are you uh, are you prepared to officially announce right now that the world's going to be back to normal in a few weeks? Back to normal, two weeks. Marco Rangelovic guarantee. Marco, I'm curious because you you're in Thailand. You spent a lot of time in Bali. You're from the UK. Uh, I know you identify pretty strongly as as nomadic. But where is the place that you would settle down if you had to? When I'm like a old man. Yeah, when when you're old and somebody's got you chained and and wants to prevent you from these incessant documentary films around the world. Never, never gonna keep going never. till I drop, man. Keep Good. going till I drop. Good. That was the right answer. <laughs> yeah, right I have on. no desire. I mean, England, I love it. Where I'm from, where I was born, Yorkshire, um, great place. Maybe when I'm really, really old and I'm struggling to walk and shit gets real then yeah i might look for a house in the hills around there or something but as long as i'm still walking around i'm gonna still travel around so love it man well hey where can uh where can the listeners find you and where can they check out makapung when it's released yeah so you can find me on instagram marco rangelovich uh, my website marco rangelovich.com uh, makapung is going to be released on matador network uh next wednesday so really looking forward to that it's been a long time coming and uh, really grateful for all the support Matt does giving me with the, the documentaries over the years. And that's Wednesday, January 12th. So this will come out on Tuesday. So that's perfect. So people can listen to this and then go check out the documentary the next day. Yeah, yeah. Please go check it out. See, see what you think to Buffalo racing. I mean, it's like average sport. And if you like it, maybe... Join our fantasy team. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can join the fantasy team. Maybe we can make a hooligan gang. Yeah, I'm excited. Cool. I'm we just gotta we gotta come up with a logo for our flag. That's gonna be the most challenging part. Yeah, fantasy football never worked out for me, so I'm gonna think I'm gonna transition into fantasy buffalo racing, fantasy macapong. Right on. Thank you, Marco. Bye. All right, we're here in the news of the day after a great talk with Marco about his upcoming film Macapong on Matador Network. Evan, our first news story of the day is uh, it's a spinner for sure. It's about four McDonald's locations in China that have now debuted stationary bicycles in the restaurant. Uh, so you can sit there and while spinner, you're stuffing I get it. yourself full. Yeah, right. I know. We're clever. While you're stuffing yourself full of calories, you can also work off a few of those calories. What are your initial thoughts? And would you try a stationary bike while you're eating a meal? So the bikes are like at tables, right? So it's like, that's just the seat. So you're sitting there, you're eating they, a Big Mac at, while you're pedaling, right? Yes, they are the they are the table. In fact, there's a table on the bike. Uh, you can find these stores at a in Shanghai and Guangdong in China. Those are the first two locations where they're being debuted and more are to come, according to the company. I mean, I guess from a practical standpoint, you can't hit on it. Like you're burning a negligible amount of calories for how much you're eating, you're consuming. I mean, what is a Big Mac? Like 1,500 calories, something like that. How long does it take you to eat a Big Mac? Probably five, no, not even five minutes, probably three minutes, right? For me, probably 45 seconds. For a normal person, probably like three, four minutes. If you're slowly kind of pedaling at a normal pace for three minutes, you're going to burn maybe 13 calories, 14, 15 calories. So it seems pretty performative. It seems like a look at what we're trying to do to help our customers stay healthy and in shape. It really isn't doing shit. It's just kind of a PR marketing gimmick, but it's not doing anyone any harm. I guess I can't, you know, you can't really hate on it too much. 
it just looks kind of ridiculous. I mean, I'm looking at the Twitter video now of uh, there's a woman and a man in a store riding on these bikes while they're eating McDonald's. And it's just, uh, I don't think something like that would ever catch on in the U.S. I don't see them bringing that over here. No, and the rate that they're pedaling at, they're, I mean, they're burning like maybe three calories an hour. Like they're not, they're, 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 their priority here is eating, not pedaling. That's very clear. But no one's going to go into a McDonald's specifically for the bikes. Though there's an idea. You don't want to pay for a gym. Why don't you just go to McDonald's? Because uh, a lot of people go to gyms not for the, the weights, but for to, to ride a bike or to, to run. So go to a McDonald's. Just pay like a dollar fifty for fries, like the small fries, and just sit there for three hours and pedal and get in shape. That's how you really exploit this. I like this. Except, you know, it doesn't look like these stationary bikes have calorie counters or any of the fancy uh, gimmicks that people are accustomed to now. No, but you get like a Fitbit or, you know, you have like a, one of those watches there that count go. calories for you. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I think, okay, so now I think we've we've discovered uh, the usefulness of this in McDonald's. So if, you, if there's one of these opens up near you at McDonald's that has a, uh, a bike that you can pedal, forget your gym membership, toss that aside, just hit up the McDonald's, local McDonald's buy the small fries and sit there for as long as you want get in shape okay well that's that one evan what do you got this week what i got is something a little more complex uh that i'm not only not completely sure i understand myself it's called aquamation the article is called sustainable aquamation here's why you should liquefy your corpse when you die so really closing it out on a high note tim uh, aquamation is an alternative to cremation, which apparently is not very sustainable. Cremation releases a bunch of CO2 into the air. Um, it's news to me, I guess. But aquamation is more sustainable. It involves covering the body with a liquid that's about 95% water and 5% liquid forms of metals like lithium, sodium, and potassium. Uh, and that solution and the body are then agitated, whatever that means, for about eight hours slowly eroding all the soft tissues and leaving only bones, which are then processed into ashes. So that's the sustainable alternative to cremation, aquamation. I don't know. Would you do this? Yeah, I probably will, actually, because I, I have uh, that was a in quick my cell. Okay. whatever will is noted um, to be cremated. You know, obviously, I'm not going to have my body stuck in the ground. I think that's insane. Well, it's very different because then, with the, then you have the ashes you can spread in a meaningful place. I don't think that happens here. Well, you'll get the ashes of the bones, maybe. But no, you won't have a full urn. You won't have a full urn. If you could get your ashes spread anywhere, where would you have your ashes spread? Uh, somewhere in the mountains of Colorado. I don't really have a specific place. How about you, Evan? Probably at uh, the local Uno, actually. I can see the twinkle in your eye right now. Just that you might as well, as I said earlier, might as well die how you lived, you know? Die doing what you love. Just <laughs> consuming rattlesnake pasta and, and pizza. Uh, yeah, okay, so aquamation. Right. I guess I can get on board. I don't know how expensive. It sounds expensive. I don't know how. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds expensive. Anything on the cutting edge of an industry is always expensive. I, I mean, I don't know if our audience is, like, old enough demographic-wise to be considering this right now, but... And by the time that they are, they might have come up with much cooler ways of getting cremated, aquamated, buried, whatever. But for now, hey, keep it in mind. Can't hurt. Right. Fair enough. Okay. Well, that's news of the day. 
Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.